listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. Hey listeners, Labor Know Your Rights will be changing our host in the near future. We have a new RSS feed with a slight change in our name to Labor Know Your Rights V2 for version 2. We did this so we could check out our new host while maintaining our old host on a temporary basis. All our past episodes are available by searching for our new name on the application you use to get our podcast now. In a couple of months, you will want to be using the new name as we will be losing the current RSS feed. I apologize for the inconvenience, but Phil, our new host, has better tools and should make our podcast better. general consensus of Congress and Washington observers lobbying activity on labor reform far exceeded any like activities in previous controversial legislation battles that they could recall. It was not until the 1930s that any effort was made to regulate lobbying activity. The Federal Regulation of Lobbying Act was enacted in 1946, Title II of the Legislative Recognition Act of 1946. The representatives of special interests were required to register and make public their expenditures in lobbying activities. In 1954, the Supreme Court interpreted only those who solicit funds where a principal purpose is to communicate directly with congressmen to influence legislation need register and file reports. It is estimated that fewer than half of the lobbyists in Washington register and file reports. Lobbying activity concerning labor management relations has been intense since laws in this field have such impact on labor and management interests. This bill brought out the very best lobbying effort by both interested parties. Lobbying efforts were made at every step of the bill, affected every member of Congress, so we will go over those reportedly to have some influence. The best was by the Teamsters, led by Sidney Zagri, an attorney and graduate of the University of California at Los Angeles. 
Harvard, and the University of Wisconsin. Zagri was quiet during the progress of the Kennedy-Urban bill in the Senate, but burst into bloom as the bill reached the House in May. Zagri and Harold Gibbons, Teamster's international vice president, played hosts at a series of breakfasts at the Congressional Hotel in D.C., which were invited all 435 members of the House, about two dozen at a time. Zagri would wire Teamsters local officers, instructing them to wire in turn the breakfast invitations to the congressmen in their districts. These local union officials would usually be on hand themselves to apply additional pressure. Zagri would rate these men from A to E depending on how like-minded they were with the Teamsters' position. When a 10-man group of Democrats voted against a union-sponsored plan to bury the bill in committee, Zagri learned who they were and telegraphed Teamster officials in their home districts urging protests. He even provided form letters and helped plan protest meetings. Zagri personally offered 59 pages of amendments and took an entire day in testimony in the hearings held by the committee. His activities went beyond the fine line between persuasion and insistence, and many congressmen were more than annoyed at him. Mrs. Green, Democrat from Oregon, said he can go to hell, and Rayburn charged him with lying in stating that Rayburn supported the Shelley bill. Representative Barden threatened to bring an investigation of his brazen outside influence. An incident that Zagri may not have been responsible for had a worse effect than all others. Zagri had been pressuring Representative Frank Thompson, Democrat from New Jersey, a friend of labor, to work for less stringent legislation than the moderate reform Thompson was advocating. Zagri denounced Thompson. Thompson started receiving threatening calls. He reported the calls to the FBI the next week. On August 18th, an unknown person ran up to his car at a stoplight and squared acid on him. Fortunately, bad aim resulted in Thompson not being injured, but public opinion went against Zagri and his ability to influence congressmen was lost. James Hoffa had been silent on labor reform until the Kennedy-Urban bill went to the House. In an appearance on a network TV show on July 26, the leader of the Teamsters Union openly expressed opposition to the bill, saying it was not corrective but punitive. He stated his union intentions to fight the bill all the way. Again, after approval of the Landry-Griffin bill in the House, Hoppe publicly stated his opposition to this type of legislation. He stated his union would not be affected by the bill, but objected based on his concern for the labor movement in general. A week later, Zagri followed up with a detailed examination of the bill to demonstrate the bill would hurt most unions other than his own by a. forcing Teamsters drivers to cross picket lines, thereby making it almost impossible for smaller unions to win strikes, b. forcing these smaller unions to join powerful organizations like the Teamsters, c. imposing financial reporting requirements, which would also induce smaller unions to affiliate with larger organizations whose staff are well-equipped to handle complicated accounting and reporting requirements, and d. inducing unions to circumvent secondary boycott prohibitions by 
amalgamating into larger organizations to secure master nationwide contracts and allow general strikes. This sounded plausible and with candor, but coming from Teamster sources could not have persuasive power. Anyone who remembered Hoppe's speech at a longshoreman's convention in Brownsville, Texas on May 19, 1959 was unlikely to believe that Hoppe's union is soberly considering the good of the nation and the labor movement. In that speech, Hoppe responded to the talk about closing the secondary boycotting loopholes in the Taft-Hartley Act by declaring that they talk about secondary boycotts. We can call a primary strike all across the nation, and that will straighten out the employers once and for all. Senator McClellan's observation was the typical reaction. It was the most arrogant, brazen thing I've heard in my life. The biggest papa of lobbying efforts goes to James Carey, president of the International Union of Electrical workers and vice president of the AFL-CIO. Enraged at the passage of the Lundrum-Griffin bill in the House, he sent a complimentary letter to the 17 Republicans and 184 Democrats who had voted for the bill. In this letter, Kerry warned these congressmen that his union would do everything in its power to convince workers in their districts that they were anti-labor and should be defeated. Many congressmen, friends of labor included, were upset and expressed their outrage at this threat and attempt to coerce Congress. Kerry seemed genuinely surprised at the reaction and denied he had intended his letter as a threat. But within a week, Kerry had done it again. In his reply to Representative Ares, a Republican from Ohio who had publicly accused Kerry of Hoppe-like tactics in sending his letter, in his letter, Kerry called Ares a mouthpiece and tool of the National Association of Manufacturers, thus by implication included in his accusation all other congressmen who had voted for the Lyndon Griffin bill. The Baker's Union representative made a threat to Representative John Lindsay, Republican from New York, that the Union would work you over in 1960, causing him to change a nay vote to a yay on the Landon Griffin Bill. 100 lobbyists met at the AFL-CIO to figure out the cause for the loss on the bill, but came to no conclusions. Businessweek magazine, based on their discussions, came to the following conclusions. A. The union failed to assess public reactions to the issue of racketeering. B. The unions were over-optimistic about the outcome of the battle. C. The union leaders failed to grasp subtilities in the legislation. D. They used threats rather than persuasion and E. They sowed confusion in not defining a clear-cut position, particularly in stating opposition to provisions they were actually prepared to accept as compromise. Lobbying for management organizations was just as intense, 
but was more sophisticated and successful. Their tactics were as follows. The National Association of Manufacturers, American Farm Bureau Federation, United States Chamber of Commerce and its state groups, and the less well-known National Small Business Men's Association collaborated in a maneuver to influence moderate congressmen from districts which elected them by less than 55% of the total vote. There were some 120 of these, 54 of whom were selected for special attention, meetings, letter writings, and various forms of contact to give them the idea that a key percentage of their constituents were interested in strong labor reform. They only needed 14 votes, but ended up with 23. The bill cleared Congress on September 4th. It arrived at the White House for the President to sign to make it a law. He was in Scotland visiting Prime Minister Macmillan and Her Highness Queen Elizabeth, but there was no doubt he would sign it. On August 13th, when victory was assured, he issued from the temporary White House at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, the following statement. With, I am sure, millions of Americans, I applaud the House of Representatives for its vote today in support of the London Griffin Labor Reform Bill, which would deal effectively with the abuse disclosed by the McClellan Committee. I congratulate all those who voted in support of this legislation. President Eisenhower's signature on the bill on September 14, 1959, without comment, was an anticlimax to the fierce legislative battle. To summarize the law, we need to look at each title. Title I, the Bill of Rights guarantees union members A, the right to nominate candidates, B, participate in meetings with other members, C, vote for union officers, D. Prohibits unions from preventing suits by members after union procedures are exhausted for settlement of members' grievances. E. Protect the right of members to appear in governmental. F. Prohibit the union from increasing assessments of members except by a secret majority vote. G. Requires that members be furnished copies by the union of collective bargaining agreements and that members be informed about the labor bill. H. Requires that unions give written statements of charges to members in disciplining actions and provide members with a fair hearing. I. Permit civil suits by members for infringement of rights guaranteed by the bill. Title II. This section is about reporting requirements by unions to the Secretary of Labor. A. A copy of their constitution. B. A copy of their bylaws. C. Annual financial reports, including records of loans of more than $200 per person, records of all disbursements, and requires that this information be available to union members. D. Provides Provide records by courts to view in suits by members. E. Report of possible conflicts of interest. F. File an annual report with the Secretary of Labor 
on non-wage money paid to unions or to their representatives or to labor relations consultants for influencing employees on bargaining rights. G. Require labor relations consultants, not lawyers, to file similar reports. H. Made it a crime to fail to file or to falsely or destroy such reports. Title III is about trusteeships. A. Require that a semi-annual report be filed with the Secretary of Labor detailing the conditions of the trusteeship, financial conditions of the local, so held, makes it a crime not to do so or to falsify such reports. RB, permit suits by the Secretary of Labor or by unions to prevent violation of trusteeship requirements. C, provide in such suits that trusteeships would be undisturbed for 18 months but after that time, it would be presumed invalid unless extended by court order. Title IV covers elections in unions. A. Requires secret ballot votes in the election of union officers at least every three years for locals, four years for intermediate unions, and five years for national organizations. B. Requires the union to mail candidates' campaign literature to the members at the candidate's own expense. C. Provides that where there is a union shop, candidates may inspect the membership lists. D. Candidates may observe the counting of ballots and voting procedures. E. Requires that members be given the opportunity to nominate. F. Permits the Secretary of Labor to conduct an election to recall a union officer guilty of misconduct. G. Permits union members to seek injunctions through the Secretary of Labor if their claims of violations of election and recall procedures are not decided by union procedures within three months. Title V. Safeguards for Labor Organizations. A. Requires union officers who are required to handle money to do so solely for the benefit of the union and its members. B. Permits members to sue for damages and to ask for an accounting when an officer is alleged to have violated this requirement and the union had made no attempt to recover such funds. C makes it a criminal act to embezzle union funds or for a union officer handling money not to be bonded. D. Prohibits loans of more than $200 to any officer or employee. E. Prohibits the paying of fines by the union for violations of this law. F. Bars officers from office for five years for convictions of felonies on the reporting or trusteeship requirements of this law. G. Bars from office Communist Party members. H. Repeals the requirement that union officers file non-communist affidavits in order to have the union eligible for the services of the NLRB. Title VI. Contains provisions that did not fit in the other titles. 
are miscellaneous. A. Provides penalties of $1,000 and one year in prison for use or threat of violence to interfere with the rights guaranteed in Title I. B. Prohibits extortion picketing. C. Gives the Secretary of Labor power to investigate all violations of this law with the exception of the Bill of Rights and the Taft-Hartley Amendments. D. Prohibits unions from disciplining their members for using their rights under this law. E. Provides that the Railway Labor Act shall not be affected by the provisions of this law. F. Provides that state laws on crimes covered in this law shall not be diminished in authority. Title Seven Amendments to the Taft-Hartley Act. A. Provides that state agencies and the courts are permitted to assume jurisdiction over labor disputes excluded from the... B. Bars the NLRB from enlarging areas it declines to consider. C. Permits the president to designate an acting NLRB general counsel if the office is vacant. D. It an unfair labor practice to coerce employers to, to approve a union or to obtain hot cargo contracts. E. To coerce an employer to recognize unions or to force another employer to recognize a union not certified by the NLRB in an election or to force him to stop doing business without, with another firm. F. Make it an unfair labor practice to force workers to strike or refuse to handle goods for any of the purposes mentioned above. G. Exempting only the garment industry and the building industry under certain specified conditions. H. Hot cargo contracts are considered unfair labor practices. I. Prohibits organization and recognition picketing if the employer has not been guilty of an unfair labor practice and has recognized another union under an NLRB certification election within the previous year, or if the union had been picketing for 30 days without asking for an, for an election. J. It brings railroad, airline, farm, and local government workers under the Taft-Hartley law provisions regarding picketing and secondary boycotts. K. Permits the NLRB to allow economic strikers to vote in representation elections conducted within a year of the strike's beginning. L. It permits pre-hire contracts in the building industry even if no NLRB election has taken place and allows these contracts to require workers to join the union within seven days and except where outlawed by state law it allows these contracts to require hiring through the union. There may be many reasons why a more strict labor reform bill was passed. Here are some that are significant. A. Two and a half years of the racket committee hearings, Senator McClellan prestige and efforts on behalf of stricter labor reform. Hoffa's attitude during the hearings and the public reaction to these 
two men and the unsavory testimony during the hearings. B. President Eisenhower's intercession on behalf of stronger labor reform, especially his nationwide television address on August 6, 1959, in a speech to labor leaders in Wisconsin on October 1959, Kennedy gave Eisenhower's efforts as the biggest reason for enactment of the strict reform. C. Senator Kennedy's determination because of his presidential aspirations and regardless of obstacles to get a bill. Goldwater called Kennedy the key to getting a bill. It is unlikely that the proponents of the moderate labor reform provisions would have been successful in moderating the Landrum-Griffin bill at all had it not been for Senator Kennedy's bill at all had it not been Senator, that Senator Kennedy possessed and exercised his great talent for timely compromise. D. The over-publicizing by the press of labor scandals and added pressure for strict reform from the public. E. Senator Goldwater's tireless and able effort for strict reform. F. Finally, the public attitude and pressure on Congress as a result reasons and the additional initiation produced by the interrelationships among three factors, relatively high union wages, continuing inflation, and the prolonged steel strike. Part of the reason I wanted to do this series was to show the details that is involved in making a bill into law. Also to show that the system works only when both proponents and opponents are willing to compromise. I realize that this series was very detailed, but this was unavoidable. My hope is that you found it interesting and also see how the system was designed to work. I thank you for listening. Please remember to search for our new name, Labor Know Your Rights B2, so that you can update our feed so you can continue to get our new episodes. Our new host is Anchor, and we have found their service and tools to be fantastic. I would recommend getting the app as it allows you to send a comment or a voice message to us. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.